This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, what works in reducing the consumption of sugar-sweetened drinks, including sweetened milk? Results from the new screening program for cervical cancer, what are they finding? And does it mean that the move to five-yearly screening based on HPV, the human papillomavirus, is going to work for women? Speaking of HPV, how well is HPV immunisation being taken up by Aboriginal communities who have the highest need for the vaccination? Aboriginal women have tripled the rate of death for cervical cancer compared to non-Indigenous women. And a large Australian study of young people aged between 12 and 30 with mental health issues has found that about one in five had signs of metabolic problems, which could partly explain the life expectancy gap of around 15 years in people with severe and persistent mental health issues. The lead author was Associate Professor Liz Scott, a psychiatrist from the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to The Health Report. Thank you. Now, tell me more about what we knew about this premature death gap with people with severe and persistent mental illness before the study was done. So we've known for a long time that metabolic risk increases in people with mental health disorders and that a lot of their physical health outcomes are very poor. And by metabolic, we mean what? What? Metabolic means um, changes in glucose metabolism, changes in lipid metabolism that really predispose you, changes in insulin resistance essentially, that predispose you to the development of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, and probably in the longer term also issues like you know, dementia. So a lot of the increased risk, however, is explained by this kind of premature cardiovascular disease. And we know that that's true for patients with psychosis. So we've, we've known that for a long time and there's been a lot of screening and assessment and treatment interventions. But a lot of those people have very established um, metabolic syndromes by the time they come into care. But isn't that the drugs they're on? So certainly lifestyle factors are important. Weight increases are extremely important. So as weight what we call BMI, so that height-weight ratio increases, um, certainly your metabolic risk increases. Medi medications absolutely contribute to that. Some of them are better than others, but that's not the whole story. What we found in a lot of our youth work is that people, people present with signs of insulin resistance before their weight has changed and also, in some cases, before they've been started on any medications and particularly those medications that we know are risky in terms of weight. Because once upon a time, it was thought that suicide was the reason for the, the gap and that's not thought anymore. No. So clearly, cardiovascular disease is a major issue and that explains not only for psychosis but also for more common mental health disorders and that's really important. For depressive disorders, we've known for a long time that depression is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and also that patients with depression are likely to die 15 years earlier than the general population from premature, most of that's explained by premature cardiovascular disease. And smoking is not the reason because there are high smoking prevalence rates amongst groups with severe and persistent mental illness. That's absolutely true but if you take smoking out of the equation the association still is true. What did you do in this study? So we've been really looking at what some of the metabolic, what some of the risk factors are in young people and trying to understand how to provide better risk assessment earlier. So we know that the disorders that we treat like depression, psychosis, the complex mood disorders are really systemic disorders. They're not just disorders of mood. They're really disorders. And they, all, and they mostly start in adolescence. And they importantly... So not only are they common, one in five people will have a depressive disorder at some time, but 75% of them will start before the age of 25. A lot of those will start in adolescence. So what we've been really interested in is looking at what are the ways, how do we, how do we look at the risk factors in these young populations, because they're going to carry them with them for a long time. How do we, and how do we take that into account in terms of treatment particularly? So borrowing from the psychosis um, 
protocols, they look at things like BMI, you know, height and weight. They look at um, blood glucose and they look at lipids. But that has so it's not, like cholesterol. That's right. But that's we know that that's actually not helpful. What we're really looking for. Why is, is it not helpful? Well, what because those are associated with much more. Um, established disorders. So it's down the path a bit. It's down the path. So we've assumed that in psychosis, that's because people gain weight, they develop insulin resistance, and that predisposes them to diabetes and heart disease. And there's a long lag time before you present with symptoms to actually that kind of process of weight gain. What we found in our pre-existing studies was that actually when you take young people presenting to youth services with a mix of disorders, depression, anxiety, some with psychosis, their, their weight, their BMIs and their fasting blood glucose is no different to the general population. And we know that some of those young people are at risk. So clearly just simply measuring BMI and fasting blood glucose was not... It's not going to give you the information. It's not going to give you the information. And BMI was actually... So as your BMI went up, young people's fasting blood glucose did not go up so, so those measures are not a good risk measure. So you looked at another measure which, if you like, is up the pathway, uh, uphill, if you like, from this insulin resistance. And we should just explain insulin resistance. Insulin is the hormone that reduces your blood sugar. And if you get insulin resistance, then it's less efficient at reducing your blood sugar. Your blood sugar levels go up and you're more at risk of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Yep, that's absolutely correct. So what was this test that you did which measured this upstream risk? So we've borrowed that from diabetes. So in diabetes, exactly the same. They're looking for really better ways of assessing risk earlier on in the in the course of illness so that you can put in place better early intervention and prevention. So the, the measure that we looked at is called the HOMA. So it's the homeostatic model assessment of in, insulin resistance resistance or the okay. HOMA. Right. And the modified version is the HOMA 2 IR. But it really So looks, my eyes are uncrossing now. That's right. So really essentially what it says is what's your level of insulin compared to your level of glucose? So if your level of glucose is high but your level of insulin is low, then we assume that you're, you know You're managing. You're managing. But actually if your level of insulin keeps going up, we assume that you've lost some of the insulin sensitivity. Your pancreas is having to pump out more and more insulin to keep your blood sugar low. But what it means in testing is if you're simply testing blood sugar, you don't see any changes in blood sugar until you're quite a long way down the track. What did you find? So when we looked at a very quite a large cohort of young people, over 750 who are coming to youth mental health clinics with a mix of disorders, we found that if you apply the HOMA2 index, we found that at 10% of them were in the insulin resist, clearly in the insulin resistant range, and another 12% were in that borderline elevated insulin resistant range. And was there anything other than their mental health issue which predicted their resistance? So weight. So obviously your BMI. So the higher your BMI, the more likely you were to have insulin resistance. So that didn't, go, that didn't disappear as a risk factor? No, no. So clearly that's a major modifiable risk factor. The younger you were was also because insulin rates levels are higher in young people. But if you, if you took those aside, they only explained about, weight only explained about 14% of the variance. So there were other risk factors at play. So in our sample, we did look at diagnosis, we looked at exposure to medications, and neither of those two So it didn't matter predictive. whether you had a first episode psychosis or Correct. depression or anxiety. Yep. It was there in all these groups. That's right. And it wasn't predicted by the medication that you were on. So something else is going on. Yes. What is it? Yes. So 
you know, we need better, you know, we need more research really to understand. But we think, particularly if you look at depression, depression is a heterogeneous group of disorders. And in that sense, it's a systemic disorder that there are Meaning probably it affects other, the whole body. Yeah. So there, in, in some types of depression, particularly, we think there are more immune inflammatory factors at play, particularly people who have more fatigue, changes in concentration or pain associated with depression. In some depressive disorders, there will be disrupted brain clock systems, circadian systems, so people have more changes in sleep and activity patterns, and we know that brain clock disturbances are associated with risk for diabetes. So, so are we talking about parallel processes here in somebody with susceptibility, or that the depression anxiety comes first and then that disrupts the metabolic side of things, or the metabolic thing causes the depression and the problem with um, insulin resistance? So again, we need more work to tease these things out, but it certainly looks like there are shared genetic um, determinants of depression, anxiety, and metabolic disruption, immune metabolic disruption, and that may lead to common biological mechanisms in these disorders. So, so it means that psychiatrists have got a stethoscope out and actually remember they they've have, got a medical degree. They have absolutely got to get their, you know, physically, they've got to be physicians and they've got to manage the physical health consequences of these disorders in addition to the mental health Liz, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Liz Scott is Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Notre Dame and the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. And you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. While we're talking about metabolic risks and obesity, one of the preventable factors we can do something about is the consumption of sugar-sweetened drinks. We've talked a lot about sugar taxes on the health report, and they do seem to work in reducing consumption. But what about other ways of getting people, particularly young people, to drink less of these potentially harmful beverages? Well, last week, a group from the Cochrane Collaboration, which exists to analyse the evidence for medical and public health interventions, released a review of the studies into various strategies targeting sugar-sweetened drinks, including sweetened milk. Peter von Philipsborn was the lead author. Peter is a researcher at the University of Munich, and he's on the line from Germany now. Thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Good morning, Norman. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Why did you leave taxation out of this review? That's a very good question because, as you've already mentioned, there's quite good evidence showing that taxation of sugary drinks can work, it can reduce the consumption of these beverages. And that's actually also one of the reasons why we left it out, because it has already been shown quite well that they work. And yeah, probably they're only part of the story. There are also other measures, and these measures were the focus of our review, the additional ones which can be implemented besides a, a levy or a tax on sugar-sweeter beverages. So you were looking for large you know, interventions that were scalable, that you could scale up to larger scale population-wise? Absolutely, absolutely, because to produce the changes in dietary behaviors which are really needed to um, to stem or to overturn the rise in obesity, which we are observing, we need measures which can be implemented on a on a large scale, not just within small um, on a small scale within individual schools, for example, but really on a population level. So the health, so report, the health, the health report is a rusted-on believer in randomized control trials. Are there many randomized control trials with population intervention? to try and reduce sugar-sweetened beverages? Um, there are some, but actually not many, um, simply because it is, of course, very difficult to implement this study type, the randomized controlled study on a population level. So we also relied on non-randomized evidence. So before and after studies, for example. So what, 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 exactly. when, when you looked at the evidence, what approaches stood out as having some reasonable evidence 
to support them? Yeah, it's one, one approach which stood out because it's supported quite well by the evidence and also because it can be implemented really on a large scale is um, labeling. Uh, so nutritional labeling schemes and what we've seen is that it's really important that it's that these schemes are easy to understand um so we have we had some studies on nutritional rating score labeling like the health star rating as it is used in australia and this seems to work it um, seems to have a positive effect on consumption patterns and we've also seen some effects for um, um, traffic light labeling systems, which use a color coding to indicate the healthfulness of beverages. So red, amber, green. What do they use in Germany? Um, in Germany, we don't have a mandatory system yet. Just like us, um, we don't either. Yeah, yeah. this certainly is a field of action for governments worldwide to, to make such systems um, both better and mandatory. I think there's only 7.5% of Australian foods that are health star rated, but we'll come back to we'll, that's a, a story for another day. Now, what, what else worked in terms of actually reducing sugar-sweetened beverages? We've also seen that what really matters is, is um, what kind of beverages are offered in schools and in other educational institutions and public institutions in general. And of course, schools matter, particularly um, for children and teenagers. And we've seen that when um, in schools, um, sugary drinks are removed and healthier beverages are offered instead that this can reduce consumption. And you looked at price as well. Independent of taxation, you looked at price. Yes, yes. And we've seen that people do react to price signals. That is, when the price of sugary drinks uh, is increased, then consumption goes down. And this is, of course, also the effect on which um, sugary drink taxes rely. And is that maybe. just in young people? Because if you take with tobacco, for example, with cigarettes, children and young people are more price sensitive than adults. And it's very quite dramatic. Is that price signal for all age groups or just young, the young people? Um, of course, there are good reasons to believe that especially children and teenagers are especially price sensitive. But um, in the studies which we included on, on price increases, we, we've, we've seen effects in all age groups. And what about the home? Yes, beverages which are at, available at home matter, especially for children and teenagers. And when um, the availability of um, healthier low-calorie beverages is improved at home, that um, this can replace consumption of sugary drinks. So fairly obvious stuff, but the things that people can get on with without waiting for taxation to change. Absolutely. But of course, what matters is that these measures are also implemented and are implemented ideally on a population, on a policy level. And that's where the governments come in. Politicians have to act. Yes, don't they, do, don't they ever. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Peter von Philipsborn is a medical researcher at the University of Munich. One of the most successful public health interventions over the last few decades has been screening women for cervical cancer using the pap smear. In Australia and other countries, it has significantly driven down the rates of this potentially dreadful malignancy. With the discovery that the human papillomavirus, HPV, causes cervical cancer and the Australian development of the HPV vaccine, cervical screening has been transformed. It's still based on the smear, but now they look for HPV infection. And if there is none and the cells look normal, a woman doesn't need to have another smear for five years. If there is an infection, then these women are followed more closely and can be referred for more detailed testing called colposcopy if the cells look precancerous. In addition, cervical screening now only starts at the age of 25. 
Needless to say, with such a dramatic shift from frequent smears and with HPV immunisation potentially changing the patterns of the disease, there's been a lot of research into the impact. We've covered this from time to time, and last week, early findings from the National Cervical Screening Programme were published, and Suzanne Garland, who's Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne, was one of the team. Welcome back to The Health Report, Suzanne. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, you've been studying HPV for years now. Oh, yes, I'd uh, have to say about three and a half decades because we've been... You started when you were 12, I know. <laughs> yes. We, what was the we, pattern before HPV immunisation came along, when a new screening test came along? Well, I mean, the pap smear uh, developed by Dr. Papanicolo um, way back in 1928 looked at abnormal cell changes and it was not particularly sensitive, but hey, it's you know really stood the test of time, and it and it worked because you did it every couple of years, so you could see these abnormalities happening. But look, Australia has really uh, moved to, uh, as one of the very first countries to go to a more sensitive test, which is as you say, HB, HPV uh, based cervical uh, screening. And, um, you know, that was based on international data. It's based on cost effectiveness. And if you're going to develop something new, you really then must uh, monitor it. So my question was, you've been looking at HPV for a long time. What was the pattern Mm -hmm. of HPV before immunisation when the screening test came along? Yes. Uh, And we did describe that a long time ago in um, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, urban, rural uh, women in Australia. And uh, HPV was very commonly picked up after sexual debut and peaked around 25 to 30 and then rapidly declined to about 5 to 10% um, after 30 years of age. Because women that, do get rid of it in, in, in most instances. That's correct. There is some um, host immune response, uh, but in a proportion... Um, they end up with chronic infection and it's the persistent chronic infection of the so-called high-risk or oncogenic HPVs that puts a woman at risk for developing cancer uh, down the line and that can be several decades. And there are two in particular that you look at, the the two subtypes you look at in particular are 16 and 18. Correct. Which is what the original vaccine was against. uh, And they actually make up... 70% of the cancers worldwide, and that's pretty consistent. So you looked at 200 samples in this study, um, the screening program. What did you find? Uh, Well, we actually looked, this is a collaborative study between the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne and Douglas Hanley Moyer in Sydney and South Australia, and we looked at the So it's a private pathology laboratory. Yes, and this was looking at the first 200,000 women coming through for screening. So um, it's quite a large number. So this is the women coming in for HPV DNA. And I'd have to say there's two populations here. Um, 80% of them were actually uh, screening women and the other 20% were higher risk. Maybe they were post-treatment for high-grade lesions or had had some symptomatology like bleeding. So really what we want to focus on is the outcome of the first six months of screening with HPV DNA in, as I say, roughly uh, 200,000 women. And, And I guess there's two major findings here. If you look at the 1618, um, this is the... This is the HPV subtypes that cause the yes, cancer. Yes, the two types that cause the majority of the cancers. 
these were reduced markedly in prevalence right across the age group. And as you asked me before, you get that peak, and the peak can be really quite high, up around the 20% odd. Um, and what we found in this study was only around 2%. So in other words, the vaccines had a really large impact on carriage of um, the HPV that causes the cancer. Uh, and the other uh, major finding was that um, it, more women were picked up because this is a more sensitive test. And people might get worried about that. Hey, why are we having to refer, refer more women to colposcopy? That's because we're using a more sensitive test. So about threefold more women are being referred to colposcopy. Which is a safety thing, really, as much Correct, as anything else. to see if there's any abnormal cells. And I think the and key did, point, And did the diagnosis rate go up? Um, we haven't got that data yet. This is only the first six months of the uh, screening. So we're still waiting on the histology. So in other words, what does the uh, tissue taken at colposcopy uh, show us? That's why we have to keep going and monitoring uh, for a longer period of time. But I think, you know, the important thing is that of the women screened, 92% can be reassured there's no infection there and they don't have to come back for another five years unless, of course, they develop symptoms. So so parallel findings is the screening program appears to be safe. There's, Correct. You not seem to be missing many, although that will, that's for another study to be absolutely sure about that. Um, but the, you're already seeing the signs of immunisation coming through. Correct. And we found the same in a Victorian study looking at... Um, the cytology, sorry, the screening with HPV DNA. And, and how accurate, how accurate were, well, just very quickly, it was the colposcopy findings because Telstra Health has failed to deliver on integrating colposcopy into the screening register, despite me giving hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. to do so. Did you have to do this by hand because you didn't have it done, you didn't have it computerised? Um, well, yes, it did give us a few challenges, to say the least. Um, and, you know, that's going to be another study. It's going to be more follow-up. We're going to certainly look at the coposcopic predictions and, as I said, the histology. I'd love to come back and tell you about it. We'll invite you. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> Suzanne, thanks for joining us. No worries. Suzanne Garland Bye. is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Women's Hospital. Cervical cancer rates in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are double those of non-Indigenous Australian women, and the death rates are triple. That means the potential for HPV immunisation to help Aboriginal communities is much higher, relatively speaking, than the rest of Australia. HPV immunisation has changed over the years. Originally, it focused on the 16 and 18 variants of the virus that Suzanne just spoke about and targeted adolescent girls. Then it expanded to more HPV subtypes and young males because they are the ones who give women the virus in the first place and themselves are at risk of HPV cancer, such as the throat and anus. In general, Aboriginal communities have high rates of non-HPV immunisations, but what's been their uptake of the HPV vaccine? That's what Associate Professor Julia Brotherton and her team wanted to know, and they've published their findings this morning in the Medical Journal of Australia. Julia is Medical Director of VCS Population Health at the VCS Foundation in Melbourne. You too, welcome back to The Health Report, Julia. Thanks very much, Norman. Now, we traditionally haven't been very good at measuring Indigenous people's vaccination rates. No, and I guess uh, for me personally, this uh, publication of this study is really feels like it's uh, the end of a decade of really hard work. And I say that because at the start of our program back in 2007, uh, and then with the establishment of our HPV register in 2008, uh, 
We really weren't reporting Indigenous status of the people we were vaccinating reliably. Look, I think it I think it speaks a lot to the fact that uh, you may recall that this was a, I guess, a highly political launch of a program that happened very, very quickly. Uh, and in fact, the legislation to allow the register to receive notifications didn't go through until uh, well after the program had started. So we saw so states and territories getting on with the vaccinating without a standard recording form. And so we were we were catching up for a while there. Um, and so really, you know, in those early years, about 50% of the data we got did not record whether the person was Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And as you mentioned, given the higher rates of cervical cancer and worse outcomes for Indigenous women, it's absolutely critical. We know uh, if vaccination is going to be able to close the gap or not. So uh, we set about really working really hard with state and territory immunisation programs to work out what all the barriers were to getting better reporting and, and to solve that as best as we could. And and the result is we we now are able to, to talk about what the coverage rate has been and that we've achieved. So it's it's certainly a great a great day to publish this paper. So what did you do in this study? Yeah, so look, this is uh, data that comes out of the HPV vaccine program register, uh, which has now been absorbed into the new whole of life registry. But um, it reflects the data um, as of uh, the end of last year before the, the register actually closed. And what we did was we ha we compared um, in four jurisdictions of Australia who now have good enough reporting to do so, we compared the coverage um, amongst adolescents who were first offered the vaccine at age 12 in 2015. So Girls and boys? Girls and boys. Um, and we, ha we had a look at um, uh, what their coverage rates were compared to their non-Indigenous um, colleagues. And? And look, the news is pretty good, I think. I think this is a good news story. We found that right across the board, we had high uptake and dose one coverage exceeded 80% for every group. Um, and we had very, very high coverage and coverage that was as good for our uh, non-Indigenous girls as non-Indigenous girls in Queensland and even higher in New South Wales. And boys? Um, and, and for boys, we also found um, very similar coverage um, in all jurisdictions, except in the Northern Territory, though it was still very close to 90% uh, and was well over that for our non-Indigenous students. So uh, still uh, absolutely uh, excellent and this is rates. whether or not they lived in cities, regional cities, or in remote locations? Yeah, look, this is the overall um, findings. So unfortunately, because we've got lots of difficulties, I guess, measuring accurately in smaller population groups, particularly amongst Aboriginal people where there are much smaller um, counts in some regions, we can't actually look at the data uh, down to that level of detail. But this is statewide. Um, and you're exactly right. It could be hiding some gaps. And that's that's why it's really important that we continue to work and understand the data in this area. But but overall, good news. The only bad news we found was we did find right across the board, this was the time at which they were meant to get three doses to finish their course, and we found there was a lower um, rate of completing that vaccine course amongst our Indigenous students. So they had dose one, and did the 80% yep. flow into dose two? 
Uh, yeah, look, I think um, we saw very similar uptake for Dose 2 uh, for all students. Um, uh, you may remember Dose 1 and 2 are given quite close together, uh, one to two months usually. So uh, whatever the barriers are to getting um, Dose 2, they're probably quite similar to, the, to but, starting the course in the first place, okay. whereas that Dose 3 is further down the line and seems to be a much bigger drop-off rate amongst now, all students. Now, a few weeks ago, you were on the health report telling me that mm. Dose 3 doesn't matter that much and you've moved to dose, do two doses anyway. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so it might not be a problem. Look, it might not be a, a problem. And, and as you mentioned, we have moved now to a two-dose schedule in Australia. It's important to note, though, that those two doses are actually more widely spaced apart now. So the two doses look more like the first and third dose. So they're six uh, months So you've apart. still got this issue of recall and coming back. We still probably will have this issue. Look, I'm really hopeful that one day I'll be able to come on and tell you that one dose is enough, but we haven't reached the evidence point yet. And I really encourage everybody, if they've started their course, to finish it for best protection against cancer. Well, you t we'll let you back on. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Julia, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Associate Professor Julia Brotherton is Medical Director at VCS Population Health at the VCS Foundation in Melbourne. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.